Happy Easter, everybody. Uh, really amazed and glad to be with you this morning as we're all doing the best we can right now. I want to give a big uh, shout out to all the musicians who helped today uh, bring us some Easter tunes and all of you who also submitted videos for um, talking about resurrection as you just saw. That was really just uh, honestly great to hear people's real authentic thoughts and reflections. It's something um, that as a community we do well and that I've missed doing with, with all of you. Uh, when all this shutting down stuff uh, began, um, before we started to just actually grasp how uh, serious and prolonged the situation would be, one of my first thoughts was, please Lord, do not uh, make us cancel Easter which at that point was some four weeks off or something like that. Um, of course, we are not able to gather today, and that's okay. Resurrection has been preached in the most dire of situations, and uh, ICS is just sort of continuing on in that tradition today. We talked last week on Palm Sunday about joy, and it was a message that I felt um, like we all needed in some way, none more than myself, because this, this is really difficult. Um, it's certainly important for us to maintain a perspective on our privilege often, right? Like having the ability to just stay home itself is a privilege, to um, maintain a job for some of us, have families even that we're able to call and FaceTime with, uh, being relatively young and healthy, right? These are um, privileges that we have, but I think it's troubling and, and also very unhealthy for us to deny the reality of our anguish in this time as well, right? Like, it's okay. We must also recognize that it's, um, we should be able to say that this sucks, that we have suffered and that we are suffering. This has personally been for me one of the more difficult weeks uh, over the, this pandemic time, right? Like. Um, one of my best friends called me this week and uh, someone that I consider like family and uh, I heard a, an edge in this person's voice right when I picked up that I had never uh, quite heard before right um, he was on the verge of mental breakdown suicidal um, just triggered and exacerbated by uh, being in isolation and it scared the shit out of me to be honest with you and it shook me to my core and something I'm still thinking about today um, and it wouldn't shock me if all of us have been in, in touch with something like this somewhere or another, um, with moments like this, maybe even uh, moments that we've had ourselves. In light of all that, it's, it's no surprise that when reading the Easter narrative this week, I found myself almost singularly and obsessively focused on the image of Mary weeping. I, I found it and I find it to be... Uh, by far the most kind of human element in this story, the most relatable, authentic, raw thing. Uh, because we, frankly, are a species that weeps, that grieves, that mourns, that feels the pain of loss. We are criers, big criers. We come into the world that way, and um, it continues on throughout the rest of our lives. And Mary's weeping struck me as, again, this sort of part of this most fundamental thing. And... Um, the power of those kinds of emotions are deeply embedded in us, in everything from our social behavior, our history, our culture, the way we construct meaning, the very um, way that we find ourselves navigating this, this world. Uh, 
you might even say that uh, the very idea of God could be seen as a child uh, that's born out of our weeping. We've all been reading a lot of things in the news for sure, and a few corona-related stories, I would say, have um, attached themselves to my psyche, like the ones about people dying alone, right? Their, their partners, families, unable to see them or care for them. There are mass graves happening right now. Um, funerals and common burials are just uh, not happening or being denied, right? These, these rituals that are so important to how we work out um, our grief in the face of unspeakable things. It seems to me that something like that brought Mary to the tomb early that Easter day, before the sun had even come out, which is a time that I personally uh, only see if I stay up through the night, and I imagine that Mary perhaps couldn't sleep as well. The Gospel story tells us that after Jesus died, his body was taken by two men, Joseph and Nicodemus, who laid it in the tomb. And the Lucan Easter story, right, from the Gospel of Luke, um, mentions that a group of women, Mary among them, uh, go to the tomb with spices and ointments to prepare Christ's body for its final rest. Mary, who had followed Jesus through, throughout most of his ministry, um, and had, had, the story tells us, just witnessed the crucifixion close up a couple days before, she just wants to be able to say goodbye to do her grieving, to perform, um, you know, again, these rituals that uh, we do to properly honor the people that we've lost and loved. So, of course, it's not surprising, right? She reacts this way uh, when she finds the empty tomb, fearing the most rational and terrible of possibilities. The idea that Jesus would just uh, walk out of this thing on his own accord uh, doesn't even enter her mind, right? Uh, The body must have been taken. She goes... And tells the disciples, uh, these these dudes who I hate on these dudes a lot. They're they're just so very roastable. They they run to see the tomb, but when they see it's empty, they just go home, which I find very strange. Maybe they were um, scared of running into Roman guards or something like that, which also makes them cowards, I would say. But Mary, she she stays right. She is. Um, too overcome by her pain to be scared. She has to know what happened. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, the text tells us. And so through a prism of her grief, she looks and suddenly there are these two angels that were not there before, right? They hadn't shown up for Peter, the one Jesus would ask uh, to lead the remaining disciples later, or even for John, the disciple that's often described as the one Jesus loved. They didn't show up for them. They showed up now, though, for the one who stayed and wept. Mary turns and a a new person is standing before her. We all know what it's like to have uh, heavy tears and swollen eyes obscure our vision. She doesn't recognize this person, right, until the risen Christ says her name. And that's a sound so unmistakable to her, one that uh, reaches deep into her soul, a voice more trustworthy than her own eyes. I think there's nothing quite like being called by name by someone who really knows you. Uh, It's more than a name. It's an identity. It's an acknowledgement of all you are as a person. And for Mary in that morning, it was the unmistakable sound of resurrection. 
the unmistakable sound of a risen God who showed up for the one who stayed and wept. Easter, you know, especially here at Root and Branch, often pushes us to consider the outer limits of what we know, what we think is true. It pushes us um, to the outer reaches of what we can accept sometimes with all this religion stuff, right? Into the strange, the weird, the metaphysical, the miraculous. Um, and that experience or thinking about that stuff can be alienating, uh, maybe even feels a little embarrassing. I've certainly felt that in my life, but there is something so deeply human here in this story that I hadn't quite seen before that makes all of those strange things feel a little bit less so. According to this particular testimony, it is the one who is in touch with her most fundamental humanness who is able to see the unthinkable, the unimaginable. It's the one who sees through her pain, sadness, and suffering, not through in the, in the sense of looking past, but through like with the lens. It's that person who the risen Christ is revealed to. If we look at this whole Easter thing as uh, not just this unfathomable tale of zombie-like reanimation, but as a story about how in um, the famous words of the psalmist, God turns mourning uh, into dancing and clothes us in joy. If we see it that way, I think we might find the distance between ourselves and a, um, the inscrutable events of resurrection sh just shrinking a little bit. If we believe that the first witness of Easter was not just randomly chosen by chance, but was met in a moment for a reason, we might see an invitation to draw actually closer to ourselves, to our breath, our bodies, our tears, our grief, drawing close to the very place where a murdered God finds new breath. It's sort of um, funny, weird to consider that for most of the church's history, the massive point of contention and argument was not actually the impossibility of resurrection, um, but the scandal of a God made flesh a God living in these gross and disgusting bodies we walk around in. Uh, I don't actually think our bodies are gross, are gross and disgusting, though um, I haven't worked out at all for months, so I feel a little bit like that maybe. But um, a God who would still show up in these bodies, right? A God that could be tortured, uh, could be crucified. How unfathomable and weird and strange was that for them? It stretched them to the outer limits of what they thought about all this religious stuff. And as much as it might seem that modernity has um, flipped this dynamic, right? It's, it's actually worth considering whether or not that's true. Maybe we have just as hard of a time believing in this stuff as they did. Believing that the source of all our being, love itself, would care so much about our pain that God would show up like this for this, reminding us um, that we ought not run away from this, this body, but actually towards it. The foreign place that uh, religion occupies in our, our culture, uh, I think, obscures the truth that just about all of the Bible is consistently and eminently concerned with a God who has a deep relationship with creation, the sacred uh, text doesn't make God the central character where 
um, everything else in the world is just like a sort of bit player on God's journey to self-discovery, like a sitcom or whatever. Uh, some might argue that that's actually true, but I would very much disagree because such a story I don't think would be called good news. The gospel accounts in particular are uh, very much about a relationship between flesh and blood with historical context where politics, wars, empires, economies, diseases shape the very message of God. It's a story that sets itself among the most ordinary of characters, right? Common folks, soldiers, tax collectors, government employees, sons, daughters, Peter, the fisherman, and of course, um, our figure Mary. The context of the Easter story, as much as the Easter story itself, shows us a God who is close by, close enough to be human as well, close enough to know what that means. If that's true, then we are looking, I think, in the wrong place if we uh, scan far off and unseen horizons for evidence of resurrection or, or listen into the far reaches of space to try and hear a name from above. Mary, the first witness, an unlikely witness by all normal standards, does not search for Jesus that way. It doesn't even occur to her to try. She encounters resurrection when she is true and present to her suffering, her humanity. That's where she finds God. That's where God shows up. As I thought about this, another verse uh, etched somewhere deep in the crevices of my mind rose to the surface. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You might have heard this before. It's one of the Beatitudes, uh, part of some of the most famous words ever attributed to Jesus uh, many of the Beatitudes are actually kind of perplexing. They don't make a lot of sense. But this one is supposed to be supposedly one of the uh, more straightforward ones and simple ones to understand. But I have to confess that I never really quite got it now, I think. Um, really quite got it, I think, until now, until I saw it through the lens of resurrection. As you saw in our video, I, I asked... Uh, all of us to um, answer this question, what does resurrection mean to you? Unsurprisingly, we did not get a flood of responses, which uh, makes sense. Um, the question was intentionally not something easy, like what's your favorite Easter tradition or whatever. It was supposed to be something difficult, something that uh, required some wrestling. So uh, I know it was difficult. And to be fair to you, I will answer this question as well in light of all that I've been saying. I fundamentally believe in the promise that nothing can separate us from love, from God. In the darkest times, in real pain, um, in real suffering, that belief may become dim to the point of almost being rejected, but it still remains like a pilot light somewhere in me ready to burn bright. And resurrection is just that promise fulfilled. Right? The promise that God breathes again, and so will I. When I realized that um, we definitely would not be able to gather in person this Easter, I, I found myself wishing somewhat... Um, Stupidly, I don't know. So I'm wishing at least that we could postpone it somehow. Um, but as I mentioned in the beginning, this this promise 
is something that's been preached throughout history, through wars, plagues, famines, um, through the collapse of countries, cities, families, through every personal tragedy one could endure. It's been preached through all of it, all the time. And we here, uh, we are here, we here are here today, I think, to hear that promise anew, just as generations of weeping people have gathered uh, in the past to do so as well. You can't stop Easter in some ways. And blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones who will be comforted. Mary found the truth of what that meant to her on Easter Sunday. And it's my prayer and my hope that uh, all of us may be able to find a truth of that today as well. Amen. I want to invite you now to go back to the Zoom chat where we'll have a time of prayer and communion. Um, I invite you also at this point, if you haven't already, to grab some communion elements for yourself, some bread type thing or whatever you have, some, some juice, some wine, or some drink as well. We'll see you there.